This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property or at least as much as we can possibly fit into this relatively short time frame been quite a lot in the news of housing in the last week or so and we like to we'll probably start by having a little look at what's happening with rents followed by the market itself how easy it is for people to buy at the moment or not uh, what's happening in the building industry around costs Māori housing programs which are pretty interesting as to some of the things they're doing there also if we have time we will have an article about an auctioneer who failed to sell a house for the highest price he could and what happens there, and also a little bit of landlord news if we can. So lots to cover. We'll rip straight back into it. This article from voxy.co.nz says, Rent back at record high under Labour, according to the National Party. But it's not just according to the National Party, it's just the housing spokesperson Chris Bishop has said that New Zealand has returned to its record high of $550 per week. Tenancy Services rental bond data released uh, recently shows that after falling to $530 per week in June, the median rents have returned to $550 nationwide, and that's a $150 per week increase since Labor was elected just five years ago. That's incredible. Rents have only been this high three times since records began, and all three have been this year. Mr Bishop from the National Party says Labor has delivered a cold in the stocking Christmas gift for New Zealand renters with even more bad news for these Kiwis already struggling with the uh, cost of living crisis. With rising food, petrol, interest rates and rents, this government has no plan to bring down the cost of living. Instead, the government is making it worse. And Labour has, was warned by everyone from officials to landlords that its taxes for landlords would lead to higher rents and the government pushed ahead anyway. Since introducing these new taxes on landlords who are also paying higher interest on their mortgages, weekly rents have increased a whopping $50. Labour is hurting the very people it claims to be helping. This is something I've mentioned for quite a long time. Obviously this article is slanted because it's from the National Party. Uh, But yet there have been a range of measures to do with renting properties that Labour has brought in place uh, that has had that rather rather large um, change and for many tenants has made things financially worse. So what does National say? They say they have a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis and will reverse Labor's changes to interest deductibility that applies to landlords, as well as undoing Labor's extension of the Brightline test to 10 years. These changes have only made things worse for people who rely on the rental rental sector to provide a roof over their families' heads. Labor's record in housing is woeful. Since it's been in office, the state house waiting list has blown out with an additional 20,000 applicants. More people are living in cars. $1 billion has been spent on emergency housing. And in July this year, half of the 64,000 houses the government owns did not meet healthy home standards. Uh, so that's a, again, that's a very one-sided view there from the National Party, yet they are just mentioning a number of things that nevertheless are true.
So tough conditions for investor buying. So multiple uh, mortgaged multiple property only investors have been in the firing line lately as the Government and Reserve Bank regulation has ramped up and the simple economics of being a landlord has also turned against them. So these hurdles have incre- included ring fencing of tax lo- losses, the extension of the Brightline test, the removal of interest deductibility, the 40% deposit requirement and then the sharply widening gap between gross rental yields, which are low, and mortgage rates, which are high, meaning that top-ups are almost inevitable for anybody making a new purchase lately. CoreLogic Chief Economist Kelvin Davidson says, given all of that, it's no surprise that data has shown a low percentage market share of purchases for mortgaged investors lately, and on top of that, it's a low share in a quiet market. On the flip side, cashed-up investors have been enjoying conditions with their market share currently hovering at 14.6%, a relatively high level. Some of these purchases won't be cash per se, rather they're likely to have involved the reshuffling or increasing of debt on other properties in a portfolio in order to free up the equity for the latest purchase. But even so, in the current environment of expensive and restricted credit, cash buyers will be seeing opportunities. So the overall market share of mortgaged investors by number of properties owned after their latest purchase means many are essentially new investors, in most cases owning their home and recently buying their first rental. The spike in overall investor activity post-COVID was driven by smaller players like investors with two to four properties. However, since early last year, their market shares have been sliding lower as well as investors with five to nine properties to some degree as well. Davidson says this seems logical. The newbie property investors probably had the most anxiety about all of the regulatory changes being pushed through, as well as probably having less equity behind them and also a greater eye on alternative, safer investments such as term deposits, which are again starting to pay better returns. He says existing investors aren't selling to any great degree and new builds still a target for investors are given favourable deposit and tax treatment. That said, the slight caveat is that although investors with two properties market share has fallen quite sharply, they started higher and their market share is still comparable to past troughs. By contrast, investors of three to four properties, for example, are below previous troughs. So there's a lot less people out there buying investment properties, which again is meaning uh, potentially, particularly where there are new builds that are not being um, completed or not being purchased It's not adding to the housing stock. This article by Miriam Bell on Stuff says, are we on the brink of a wave of mortgagee sales? So the number of mortgagee sales has increased over the last year and is expected to rise further as households come under more financial pressure. Figures from Trade Me show the number of properties listed as mortgagee sales on the site was up 25% last month from the same time last year, although I must say that the numbers are so small in terms of volume, there would be some significant changes. The Trade Me Property Sales Director Gavin Lloyd said it is important to note the percentages based on a very low number, with just 27 mortgagee listings on the site at the time he provided the data. There were 25 mortgagee sale listings on Trade Me on Wednesday, but rising interest rates could mean further increases in the number of mortgagee sales on site in future. So basically a mortgagee sale is when a lender sells a property to recover the money it's owned, usually usually a bank. In the first quarter of this year there were just six mortgagee sales nationwide, a 17-year low. The number went up to 20 in the second quarter and 28 in the third. 
So we'll just have to see how, how things go there. It's a bit hard to tell uh, what will happen, but there might be people who have really stretched to get, to get into a house or to get a house who are now finding that uh, the changes in interest rates when they come off fixed terms are in some cases doubling or almost tripling their repayments. So that's something that we'll have to watch that space. So I imagine next year there'll be more mortgagee sales and uh, investors will be looking around to see what they can find at that stage. This article by Eric Crampton, stuff.co.nz, says what to do about competition and costs in the building industry. And it's no surprise that the building industry costs have gone up, really, um, supply and demand. And the this article by Dr. Eric Crampton, who's a chief exec- economist at the New Zealand Initiative, he said that basically... There's real problems that the Commerce Commission has noted in their final report into building materials, and the market is less competitive and materials more costly than they should be. The Commission identified real problems, and as it put it, it is too slow, costly, and uncertain to get new and innovative products approved for general use. And while there are options available for getting new and imported materials certified for use, the system just does not work very well. Councils must sign off on buildings, and if councils sign off on a building and anything goes wrong, whether because of real failures years down the track or because someone's aggrieved about the builder's substitution of one material for one equivalent one, councils can face enormous cost. And the risk is real. In 2018, Sapere found that 48% of cases over the last decade Building consenting authorities were left to pay 100% of the damages as the last man standing under joint and several liability. So suppose an architect wants to try something new using innovative materials from overseas that are lower cost than existing Kiwi products, stronger and more sustainable. If a council signs off on the new building and everything goes right, the council sees none of the benefit. But if anything goes wrong, the council stands at odds of bearing 100% of the damages. So this is a really fundamental problem that's making this process of uh, bringing new products into the market difficult. And uh, that really means that the regulatory uh, barrier makes architects and builders less likely to specify unfamiliar materials, locking in an advantage for domestic suppliers. So how to fix that? A uh, little bit hard to know, um, but but it's certainly around a liability issue that's the thing that's driving that. So here's a bit of future forward thinking by Andrew Bevan of newsroom.co.nz. In this article called An Uncomfortable Truth That Will Change Our Housing Landscape. It says that by 2048, 40% of those aged 65 won't own their own home, a vital tool in assessing care. So widely understood for millennials and younger, the Retirement Commissioner's three-yearly retirement income policy review details a housing crisis for those 65 and above. Jane Wrightson's report says if current trends continue, there will be a 100% increase in people renting aged 65 in the next two or three decades. This is a staggering projection that will change New Zealand's housing landscape. Long term, the balance of home ownership is expected to shift to 60% homeowners and 40% paying rent. By 2008, that 40% will equate up to 600,000 people. And Wrightson points out this doesn't bode well for New Zealand's pension scheme, which is based on the assumption retirees own their own homes outright. And wow, that's an old school of thought, that one. 
aged care facilities, which are by far the largest health care providers in New Zealand, are already pushed up to breaking point by funding shortfalls and related worker shortages. The ageing population means the country needs another 15,000 new care beds by the end of the decade and around 40,000 in the next 20 years. So uh, that's just a, a, a real concern there for how we're going to care for or house people in the older and what those costs might be. So here's some positive news. This is from watianews.com, Māori housing programme Gathering Pace. Māori housing developments are starting to come to fruition with Associate Housing Minister Pini Henere opening 10 homes at Papamoa last week and another 10 at Murawai near Gisborne on the weekend. He says Māori leadership is appreciative of what's being done from a zero base and so far 939 of a planned 1,000 new homes have been approved for building. 330 homes have been repaired and the government is halfway towards its target of providing infrastructure for 2,700 sites. Mr Henare is now looking at how it can scale up even more. He says, how do we continue to alter the settings so we can get more out of housing for our people? And ultimately, home ownership is where people want to be, but we appreciate for now that emergency housing, social housing, and a mixture of home ownership has to be done. The Murarai development done by Nai Tamanu Huri is part of the Toitu Tairafiti Iwi Collective with support from Whaikainga Whaioranga Fund consists of four rental single bedroom units for Kaumatua and six three or four bedroom homes which will be occupied by Iwi Whanau on a rent to buy agreement over 10 years. And following on from that, uh, high hopes for vertical papakainga multi-level Māori villages in this article and stuff by Rob Stock. Vertical papakainga or housing, could play a role in Māori being able to live on the whenua they papa back to in Auckland, Hapu believes. Ngāti Whātua Oaraki, excuse pronunciation, is a hapu of the Ngāti Whātua Iwi in Tāmaki Makaurau, Auckland, and its work developing the concept of vertical housing has been showcased in the Kaingatahi Kaingarua book published by Bridget Williams Books. The hapu's long-term vision, and there's pictures of us, it looks really cool, is people to enjoy a high level of physical, emotional and spiritual mental well-being and housing as part of that strategy. It has been progressively developing low-density housing on its land at Oraki, but with over 6,000 members it may need to build higher to meet its aspirations. Across Auckland, Tamaki Makaura, Intensification is underway as the city struggles to catch up on years of failing to build enough homes. There is no desire uh, to replicate blocks across the city. Instead, if it develops vertical papakainga, it wants them to be an integral part of a thriving, healthy village with plenty of communal space in which people can live in ways that promote whanau, whanau, <laughs> oh, excuse me, connection to the marae and to the sea. Beg your pardon, I'm getting tongue-tied this morning. So they want them to return to village life in the homes, you know, in, in inverted commas village life, in homes that they can own or rent with confidence of tenure. In 1951, after the Crown took the last of Ngāti Whātua's land, the village was destroyed to make way for a royal visit, and almost seven decades on, the iwi is still rebuilding. So what is proposed is not just another apartment building or a cluster of housing units, 
its concept of vertical kainga includes communal spaces, shared lounges, rooftop gardens, removable interior walls, so apartments could be reconfigured as whānau needs change. So you can find that on stuff. Very interesting indeed. And um, good to see uh, interesting and innovative new ways of looking at living on ancestral land. So as I mentioned uh, before we started, uh, there's an article here by Brianna McIlwraith on stuff.co.nz. An auctioneer refuses a $500, bid, $500 bid on a house, so what are the rules? So a Hamilton auctioneer refused to sell a property for $500 more because he said, I can't make my commission on that. But Lugton's auctioneer Campbell Turner was within his rights to refuse the bid, according to the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand, REINZ. The Hyde Ave property went for auction on November 23rd under Turner. The final call was for $492,000, but when an agent on the phone with her bidder offered $500 more, taking the price to $492,500, Turner declined the bid because he could only calculate his commission in $1,000 increments. He says, thousands are good, but 500s are no good, he says. The agent can be heard saying, you could have $500 more, as Turner makes his final call before he responds, yeah, I could, but I won't. The property sold for $492,000. The live auction video, which was posted to Lugston's website, has since been removed. Turner, real estate agent for the property, um, did not respond for questions for comment. Staff understands that... Uh, the agent was unhappy with how the auction played out and along with his bidder sent a formal letter of complaint to the company earlier this week and was told not to speak with the media. The company is understood to be investigating the incident. A Real Estate Institute of New Zealand spokesperson said the auctioneer had the right to refuse a bid. The spokesperson said the institute did not comment on the specific auction directed stuff to the Real Estate Authority guidelines. The Auckland District Law Society and Real Estate Institute of New Zealand's Standard Sale and Purchase Agreement by auction actually has wording in it that says the auctioneer may nominate the sum by which the bidding can be raised. The auctioneer may refuse any bid. So if a person's unhappy with how the auction has been conducted, they can, can complain to the Real Estate Authority, and we'll have to see how that one turns out. Certainly I'd be very disappointed uh, as a buyer if I wanted to place that bid and um, was unable to. But, you know, we'll, we'll see where that one goes. Uh, right, so this next one here is quite a tangled mess of, um, and this is in the bad tenant, bad landlord section of the show. There's a couple of things to talk about today. So pet rabbits led to allegations of assault and unlawful entry between a landlord and tenant. And this is by Daniel Smith on stuff.co.nz business. So a Dargaville tenant alleged that her landlord broke into her home and struck her in the face while checking her home for pet rabbits. The landlord, Heritage Painters and Decorators Limited, represented by a Mr Brunton and Miss Rowland, denied striking the tenant but acknowledged they entered the home to check for rabbits. The landlords lived next door to tenants Jan and Ruth Oliver, who kept rabbits as pets outside. Rowland suspected that the Olivias were allowing the rabbits inside the home and this has caused escalating tensions, particularly between Rowland and Ruth Olivier. On March 28th, Roland went to the property with the intention of confirming there were rabbits inside the house. Ruth Olivier was home at the time on a phone call when she saw Roland approaching. The parties have different recollections of what happened next. Olivia, Olivia said she continued her phone call and it aggravated Roland entered the house, yelled at her that she was going to evict her. Olivia alleged Roland then struck her several times in the face. Roland allegedly left the property for her own home where she was followed by Olivier and more shouting ensued. 
But Roland denied this happened and said she entered the conservatory of the Olivier's home only, not the house proper. She was angry and upset about the rabbits and she told Olivia she was going to end the tenancy. Olivia then followed her back to Roland's home and pushed her before Roland and Brunton escorted Olivia off the property, Roland said. After the incident, Roland went to Jan Olivia's place of work and told him the tenancy would be terminated. So many things done wrong here, it's hard to keep count. Tenancy adjudicator Nicholas Blake said the evidence clearly showed Roland had unlawfully entered the premises. And just in case you're wondering, she walked into the conservatory without permission and interfered with the tenant's reasonable peace, comfort and privacy. The landlord breached the Residential Tenancies Act when Roland went onto the property to look into the windows to attempt to catch the tenants with rabbits inside the house, Blake said. Roland also breached the act when she confronted Ruth Olivier, shouted at her and told her that the tenancy would be terminated and went to her husband's place of work to do the same, he said. Roland's actions were clearly intentional and very distressing for the tenant. There is a legitimate public interest in ensuring that landlords follow a proper and legal process to identify whether a tenant has committed a breach of tenancy agreement and to hold the tenant accountable for the breach. Landlords cannot take matters into their own hands, Blake said. For this incident, heritage painters and decorators were ordered to pay the Olivier $600 for the unlawful entry and $750 for the breach of quiet enjoyment. Following the incident, police interviewed several neighbours but did not lay charges against Roland. Olivier provided photographs to the tribunal taking the day of the incident, which showed bruising to her face, but she also provided a doctor's report confirming the injuries. Blake found that it was not proven that Roland had assaulted Olivier, and two days after the incident, the landlord issued a 90-day notice to terminate the tenancy. Blake, the adjudicator, said it was no coincidence that the termination notice was issued so soon after the incident, and the notice was an unlawful retaliation against Olivier's over the disagreement about the rabbits. So heritage painters and decorators were ordered to pay $4,500 compensation to the Olivier's for the unlawful termination notice. It's very hard being a landlord these days. You've got to do everything correctly. Heritage painters and decorators counterclaim compensation for damage to the house, including staining and damage to the curtains that Roland attributed to rabbit damage. Roland was also awarded $4,320 to replace the carpet, which had been stained by, in inverted commas, rabbit urine and faeces, and $2,185 to repair and repaint walls damaged by rabbits. Overall, the Olivia's claim totaled $7,050, but Heritage Painters and Decorators was awarded 11703 So the tenants ended up paying... Um, the bond was given to Heritage Painters and Decorators and the Olivier's were instructed to pay a further $3,303 to Heritage Painters and Decorators. What what a mess that one was. Far out. So that's, it's, a, yeah, it's a hard one there. And um, the, the owners clearly did a number of things wrong, which led them to pay a considerable amount of money that they wouldn't have otherwise had to pay. This article on stuff.co.nz by Ethan Teora says vexatious landlord Cheryl Scott, the scion of a property empire or a fantasist. Cheryl Scott is alleged to have harassed those connected to her rental properties for decades using the courts to pursue grievances far beyond the limits of a fixed term <laughs> lease. Excuse me. And it says here in the article, Cheryl Scott leans over the seat of a toilet and takes a photo inside the bowl. And while she does this, the Wellington landlord is on camera herself. Ollie Wrench, a tenant at the three-bedroom flat, films the inspection on his phone. His disembodied groan can be heard the moment the shutter clicks. Are you really taking a photo in the toilet, Cheryl? He says. 
Scott straightens a moment, seeming to study the image in the viewfinder. Apparently unsatisfied, she shuffles closer to the toilet, releasing the shutter of the point-and-shoot camera three more times. The inspection, carried out one afternoon this October, is over within 20 minutes. For the past six months, Wrench has filmed Scott's monthly inspections, as she has repeatedly objected in writing and in person, even once reporting him to the police. Throughout this particular visit, she shields her face from the camera with a notebook. At one point, she threatens to slap Wrench. Stay away from me, she says. Don't effing back towards me, then, uh, Wrench responds. Three days later, after the inspection, Scott tapes a nine-page handwritten letter to the front door. Written in strident, legalistic language, the letter informs Wrench and flatmate Scott O'Callaghan that they have violated the Residential Tenancies Act. Uh, <laughs> Ollie Wrench had received many long and rambling handwritten letters from his landlord. Attached to this letter is a notice giving the flatmates 14 days to fix a litany of issues, at which point Scott will return for a re-inspection. The alleged infractions listed point by point include very visible poo on the toilet pole, dust on the window frames, flower heads on the front lawn. <laughs> That's amazing. It is a sixth 14-day notice she has issued since the tenancy started a year ago. Other notices allege the, that resting shovels against a fence or not picking leaves off the lawn are violations of the lease agreement. One notice even claims a coat hanger on a curtain railing constitutes a breach of the RTA. Each notice is supported by its own handwritten letter, often pages long, and those letters appear to foreshadow legal action because they contain references to serious offences, illegal behaviour and breaches of legislation. This will serve as evidence, a recent letter ends. The trajectory of the disagreement feels inevitable. Over the past two decades, practically every inch of the flat on Rycott Terrace and Broadmeadows has been litigated and relitigated through both the Tenancy Tribunal and Disputes Tribunal in cases typically bought by Scott herself. Another of Scott's rentals on Horokiwi Road in nearby Newlands figures heavily in litigation too, as does her own Kandala home. A search for Wellington Tenancy Tribunal decisions and orders involving Scott turns up more than 200 pages over a seven-year period. The paperwork shows her taking cases against tenants across eight different tenancies, often pursuing unrealistically high dollar-figure amounts for damages, dragging disputes through lengthy appeals processes for up to four years. Tenants often allege harassment in the forms of persistent communications and lengthy letters. Those letters are litigious and accusatory in tone and adjudicator notes. One such letter comprises an extraordinary 35 handwritten pages. But Scott's letters are dwarfed by her own court submissions. She was once ordered to condense 148 handwritten pages of evidence into 10 single-sided typewritten pages. Tradespeople who work on Scott's properties often go unpaid. In fact, Scott habitually attempts to make them pay out damages to her instead. No fewer than nine cases have ended up in disputes tribunal over the last 13 years, with mounts ranging from 329 for a small paint job and almost $15,000 for a larger renovation. And the latter case dragged on for five years before Scott paid up. So uh, it's just, just incredible. Some tenants and tradespeople fearing another drawn-out legal fight have not asked to be named in the story, which uh, have, sorry, have been asked not to be named. And it's also covered in Cheryl Scott versus the People, the latest episode of Stuff's True Story podcast. So I might find that one now. So uh, it goes on and on with all of her incredible behaviour. Um, and uh, it's it's just hard to imagine. There's literally pages and pages of this article. So that's uh, Cheryl, about Cheryl Scott. You can always look that up on Stuff. And um, incredibly 
bad how some landlords treat their tenants and one would only hope that she occasionally gets what's coming to her in terms of fines and penalties awarded against her in court. But it's just amazing that people have the time uh, to do these sorts of things. And often she'll beat people or get people to pay just simply because the effort and time involved with um, them trying to defend themselves is not really worth it. So I'll find that podcast, I'll probably find that quite interesting. If it's got anything particularly interesting, I'll bring it to you next week. But otherwise, that's all we've got uh, on the show for this week for Property Matters on NPR Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo irirangi o nga tangata o Manawatu. And I'm Greg Watson. You can find a recording of this where all good podcasts are found or at mpr.nz. Have a great week and we'll catch up with you in a week's time. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.